Welcome to the Action Research Podcast. Somehow, the first podcast dedicated solely to action research. Each episode, action research experts Adam and Joe explore facets of this research methodology. Speaking with experienced and emerging action researchers, they aim to contribute to this important and growing field and understand the nuance and process of action research in action. The Action Research Network of the Americas is pleased to sponsor this podcast and invites you to be a part of their eighth annual conference, Co-Creating Knowledge, Empowering Communities, virtually this year with sessions throughout the month of June. Information about the conference can be found at arnawebsite.org conferences. Now, back to your hosts. My name is Adam Stieglitz, PhD candidate at the University of Louisville and also director and co-founder of the Andean Alliance for Sustainable Development, a social change organization in the highlands of Peru. My name is Joe Levitan, an assistant professor and graduate program director at McGill University, as well as the co-founder and co-director of Centro Educativo Payatayu, a community-based learning center in the Peruvian Andes. Our regular listeners know that we like to experiment with different episode formats. Instead of our usual lightning round and semi-structured interview, this episode features an open conversation between Adam, Joe, and radical epistemologist and friend of the podcast, Dr. Alfredo Ortiz Aragon. They have been problematizing and discussing what rigor means in action research. Is it a useful term for the paradigm? What are the issues with the term in action research? Using quotes from their own previous conversations to revisit important themes and to ground the discussion today, Adam, Joe, and Alfredo continue where they left off. Ortiz, you said, and I quote, the problem, in my opinion, is that many researchers, amazing action researchers, they don't have the language for it. They've never tried to frame action research from within its own reality. And the interesting thing is, other fields have. Service design has, engineering has. There are versions of action research out in the technical fields where they have language for when you need rigorous research, when you need shitty first drafts, when you need just a quick conversation. Can you tell us a little bit more about your stance there and where you're coming from when you enlighten us with that perspective? Yeah, it's funny. It goes back a little bit to a presentation I gave at the International Congress of Qualitative Inquiry, ICQI. It was titled Beyond Guardians of Rigor, Taking the Idea of Researcher as Primary instrument? Seriously, something like that. And because I didn't come into the world of academia from academia, I came from the world of practice. I didn't enter in with as much of a blank slate set of ideas just for there to be research roles implanted in my brain for me to do things the right way. The main idea here is that when we immediately use terms like rigor to talk about action research, we end up starting to go down a rules-based way of thinking that may be ignoring what some of the primary purposes are of action research. And so, you know, you'll hear people say, action researchers in conversations and presentations and podcasts, et cetera, you know, they've talked about all these cool things, you know, that they've been doing to engage people and to address the problems that are really important and to get people involved and to, you know, pay attention to how we're actually achieving some kind of change. And then you ask them, uh, and what about rigor in action research? Well, of course it has to be rigorous. Rigor is central. Yes, of course, it's science. We need to be rigorous in the way we, we conduct this while we're doing the other stuff. 
every time I hear that response, I think they're citing two sets of ideas. One, to do action research, you have to do all these other things that are really meaningful. And then to make it legitimate in the eyes of institutions, organizations, universities, et cetera, we have to call it rigorous and that means something else. And somehow those two worlds are compatible when they're not really compatible in many ways. And I think we have, need to have that, that discussion. What are we really trying to do rigorously in terms of action research? And is that the right word? And can we come up with better language to explain from within our own fields what rigor means for us and we use it in a way that's, that's useful to us? I've been working in a project in service design, like human-centered design, that kind of stuff. That's not my area of specialty, but the people I was working with were very much experts. And they're trying to design services in ways that are also collaborative, in ways that are human-centered and responsive to what people want and need. It's more in a business world where there's a product or service at the end, but even so, they have their process for it. Some of you have heard of this double diamond, which is a one way that they structure their approach. It's kind of similar to the idea of cycles and action research. Uh, they have you know, four phases, discover, define, develop, deliver, and each one of those is, is a part of, of this double diamond. And the discovery phase is very explicitly about going out and finding out about the situation, doing some traditional research and really dealing with that to make sure you're going to depth. And then using that to redefine what the purpose is of, of your project, of your service design through a definitional mode. Fast forward later on in the process, they're doing prototyping. They're doing all kinds of different activities to really test out ideas. And it's still research, but it's also action at the same time. But they know they're not in a formal research mode in that moment. They're just trying to get the best ideas possible. And they kind of throw the rule book out the door in certain phases of it. They have good explanations as to why they do that. We need to have good explanations in action research as to why we do the same in our work. Going off of what you were talking about, especially earlier with this concept of rigor and wanting to have this dialogue with you as a radical epistemologist is how does action research within its own paradigm understand itself? And then how does this concept of rigor as we understand it in the academy, how does it influence the way action researchers talk about themselves and, and what is rigor? in the academic sense and then also working towards some kind of shared understanding of what should we be talking about in action research to show that it is good or effective or whatever you want to say you know what are those terms that we should be using for sure and i'm just going to come in too and say that this is a topic that particularly resonates with me because as you know and probably our audience by now too i'm like well in my fourth year of my PhD program, and I'm almost done collecting data for my dissertation, which I framed as an action research investigation. It was my principal methodology. And I've also got other projects going on in the field that uses action research methodology, but level of rigor is across the board when you compare the two. It's almost like two different ends of the spectrum. And I think that there are certainly advantages and positive takeaways when you look at both, right? When you look at where I am sort of being forced, if you will, to be rigorous, of course, that's through the lens of my dissertation research. And then on the other hand, you know, with some of the other work that I'm doing in the field, there's zero accountability as far as how rigorous my work is or isn't. It's only up to me, which also has its advantages and disadvantages, frankly. So I think for me, I'm going to probably be referencing, you know, particularly graduate work or dissertation research through the lens of rigor and the things that students and or faculty might consider 
when you're planning, executing, writing, and action research investigation. Yeah, I can share maybe an example of some of the questions of, of rigor, and maybe it's worth talking a little bit too at some point about what do we mean by rigor? When I hear the word rigor, I think of stiff, <laughs> I think of rules, I think of a right way to do things and a wrong way to do things. I think of being stern and following things very closely. So not just rules, but really following them very closely. It's a disciplinarian word for me when I think of rigor. Etymology of rigor is interesting to me in some of this. So stiff, solid, the idea of rigor mortis. I hear rigor and I'm an academic and I rigor is thrown around all the time, but all of a sudden rigor mortis always comes in, which is, you know, like the stiffness of being somebody who's recently passed away. I'm not saying that rigor is necessarily problematic, but I do think that there are some facets of the concept of rigor to me as in, in terms of defining rigor, it is the sense of discipline and structure. So have you dotted all of your I's because I's need to be dotted? Have you crossed all of your T's because you need to cross T's even if everybody knows what the word is that you're trying to write? Sometimes that's important because especially in epistemology, we often don't know what we know and we're trying to figure out how to justify ourselves. There is something about rigor that is valuable in that, in that sense. But at the same time, I feel like if you get into the rigor of rigor mortis, then there's like a, a freezing aspect to it or like something that really freezes the creativity or the fluidity that experience and practice and action require. That's just a little bit of off the cuff definitions to me. Cool. And I'll come in too. Here are some of the ideas that come to my mind when I think about rigor and action research. For one, to me, I align it with structure, which sometimes I think is good, but you could argue that sometimes it might impede on the emergent nature of action research, you know, and allowing for the messiness to manifest in meaningful ways. I look at it through the lens of formality, right? And it's almost like this idea of action research as a methodology is the qualifying, identifying factor of what you are doing rather than whatever the work is in the actual field, right? You're driven by the fact that it's action research rather than whatever the challenge is perhaps that you're trying to get to the bottom of or whatever action you're hoping you think might be necessary in the field. I think of it being documented. <laughs> and really that's because like one of the biggest differences between the work that I'm doing for my dissertation and the other work that I'm doing in the field is that for my dissertation, one of the reasons it's so rigorous is because I am being forced to document everything that I'm doing from start to finish, right? And there's no one holding me accountable to doing that with some of the work that I'm doing in the field, for better or worse, right? Probably for worse, right? That it's not being documented. So I think that there's something to be said to that too. I think that rigor in action research inherently implies that there is some sort of researcher guiding the process. It would take a lot for a participant to own the action research process and the way that the lead researcher is or would be, and what are the implications of that? And finally, I see it as somewhat of a measurement tool, right? It's a way that you're forced to look at something and say, to what extent is this rigorous? But that begs the question, rigorous to whom? And that I think is what needs to be broken down a little bit because I know that for me in my dissertation, who cares whether my research is rigorous or not? So I think that would be an easy jab for any 
committee member on someone's dissertation committee that's doing action research, you know, is to automatically just go to rigor and make the argument that it's not rigor enough without even really knowing the nuts and bolts of the study. So a little anecdote, when I was doing my PhD research, when I was writing really fully, you know, kind of deeply writing my dissertation, I was really afraid that the knowledge claims that I was going to make were going to be rejected, or they were going to say, how do you know that? And they being committees and other people, and then they were going to deeply examine my methodology and the ways that I coded the data and find some fatal flaw that was going to be the difference between me finishing or not. And so I was like, shit, I've got to back all this stuff up. How can I do that? And um, the way I did it was I completely buttressed it with multiple quotes, detailed, longhand conversations of people reacting to things, kind of showing, not just telling. And I did it out of fear so that anytime someone would say, how do you know this? They would be less inclined to actually ask that because the same section would have tons of original writing from the participants of, of sorry, their own words. I went uh, to present part of it, a work in progress seminar about halfway through dissertation. And an anthropologist co-student of mine said, hey, I read your work in progress report. You did organizational ethnography. And I said, whoa, yes. Well, I, yes, I did. Um, and then I had to ask someone on the side, what is ethnography? <laughs> uh, but in fact, now let me make a connection between that and this idea of, of rigor. I was aware in this, in a dissertation mode that I couldn't just write a practitioner report. I had to kind of show how my knowledge claims were supported by a strong process, methodology-wise, a compelling way of analyzing the information that came out, organizing it and putting it back together, and by showing and not just telling. And that was not something I ever felt compelled to do before when I was a practitioner. And so in the process, I was able to really not prove, but show that my knowledge claims had a lot of backing to them. That wasn't just making it up. And there was some level of traceability. Peter Checkland in the world of soft system thinking, one of his terms for rigor is recoverability. Can people look back at your work, not to reproduce it, but to be able to trace the steps and understand how you got to your knowledge claims? And can you defend that, right? So, so that's what I was trying to do. And that, that was important because one, I fear I wanted to pass my PhD, but two, there's a positive side to that, which was how do we show the people that were representing their voice that we really did elevate the key voices that came out who are normally not part of these participatory workshops and other things. How can we show that those voices survived the journey to the final products, to the changes that were support that were pr promoted to the dissertation or other reports or did all of those voices die in committee of higher-ups later on, right? Or were they weeded out by a professional practitioner, action researcher, who, who didn't have a way of keeping those voices alive? And, and so I see the positive aspects of, if we want to call it rigor, to show that our process did keep the most important voices in the process alive throughout the process in a way that's recoverable. So that, that's one way of thinking about it. I think that what you said about kind of the positive aspects of what it means to justify or to have recoverability in your research is really important. And then also thinking about that fear and negative and, and perhaps constraining things that need to be really, really 
well justified. And a dissertation, to be fair, is probably one of those. To be able to show people that you're able to do very thoughtful work, you're able to check all of your sources and make sure that's recoverable, to make sure that everything that you're saying is justified by the data itself and things that you had to do in order to pass your dissertation as a process in of itself and the objectives of the dissertation are pretty much that. Like, can you do this kind of work in ways that meet certain quality standards, if we want to call them that? When I was writing my dissertation too, it was like, all right, I need to make sure that all of this stuff is really done well. And then I was thinking, how much time is that taking when there's also this ongoing action research project that I'm working on? And how much of this information that I'm gathering and some of the insights that I'm finding, how much of these insights are relevant and usable for the people who I'm working with and how much of these insights are really just to make sure I get a check mark and I can get that degree that I've been working so hard for. I needed to do both. I understand they both serve their purpose, right? The academic paradigm is you need to be able to be really a thoughtful, careful, researcher and scholar to make sure that your claims are well justified and backed up and recoverable. In action research, you need to be a careful and thoughtful thought partner, collaborative worker to make sure that the findings that you're coming up with as a community are going to be actionable and usable to improve lives in some way. Sometimes those things line up. And then sometimes those things are at odds because you have to spend, you know, X number of hours per month writing a dissertation and life goes on for the community. So some of those things I think are within action research. How do we start to think about action research in its own paradigm? Because that, that was what you brought up, uh, Alfredo, that I thought was so compelling. So we have this academic sense of rigor, which is really carefully well-justified, making sure your methodology is really well thought about, your methods were followed very carefully, maybe strictly, because we're using this term rigor, that your analysis was done so that there are no inherent internal contradictions, that it was done in a way that was justified from the literature, et cetera, et cetera, and that your conclusions have a straight kind of line, a thread between your research question, your methodology, your method, your analysis, and your conclusions. How much does this have to do with what we're doing in action research, though? Like, when we're writing up articles, maybe it has something to do with that because we wanna make sure that whatever it is that we're doing is actually portrayed well, but is there some other word to be used rather than rigor for some of this stuff? Part of the problem is that we are putting action research as a paradigm, right, in a corner and saying, as a whole, is it or is it not rigorous? And I think that's where we're running into a little bit of a challenge because I think rather than asking that question, right, we should be breaking down, like you suggested, the specific characteristics components of an action research study and examine the extent to which those are being rigorous or should be rigorous. I'm going to segue into another quote to keep the conversation rolling. Ortiz, you said, I firmly disagree with the fact that action research should be rigorous as a rule. It should be useful. It should be relevant. It should be meaningful. And it should capture the diversity of voices. And there are moments it should be rigorous depending on the tool, depending on the situation, depending on what you are trying to do. But at the end of the day, the knowledge is intended for action. So it has to be useful more than rigorous. And you don't need rigorous knowledge to generate useful information for change. 
I love that quote. One of the challenges that I'm facing doing action research as my dissertation is that it's unrealistic to some extent to expect that within such a short time frame of a dissertation, especially in, in the States where you're really only doing two years worth of research and writing, to expect that you can achieve significant social change, community-driven change, participation, collaboration. These things take time. They take longer than that. And what I've realized well into my dissertation is that while, yes, my dissertation research is action research, what it really is is a slice of an action research investigation that I've actually been part of for moving on to a decade at this point. And I'm just doing an evaluation, right? So there's going to be elements of it that are participatory. There's elements of it that aren't. There's going to be, I think, change eventually. But I'm doubtful that a direct circumstance of my dissertation in, in that, within that time frame is going to prove to show the social change that I think eventually I will achieve, right? So what does that say for the extent to which my study is rigorous through an action research lens? I don't know. It's a lot easier for me to look at it and say, you know, is this useful? Is this meaningful? Does this capture community voice, et cetera? What do you guys think? Ortiz, do you want to respond to your own quote? <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think so. When part of your study may be really focused on the change on the ground. So we worked with an activist organization in, in Peru trying to help them improve their organizational identity at a time they were having a lot of conflicts. At the same time, I was studying how complexity theory played out in these situations. They were only partially interested in that. That was my kind of separate interest, and I was harvesting that knowledge out on my own. And so there was a rigor and, I guess, fealty to the organization and the things they cared about, their research questions. But then I had my own research questions separate from that, um, that I was using across different cases that I was working with. And so right off the bat, the fact that action research has so many purposes that go well beyond traditional notions of research, we need to have multiple definitions of rigor and probably different words for it to describe those different purposes that you're actually trying to achieve to show that you're doing a good job at that. One of the projects we're working on is uh, working with parents of children on the autism spectrum to try to help them figure out ways to improve access to services at the right time for their kids in what is normally a very challenging process to get services. And there are really important windows of development that, that you can't miss. And so the leader of this project, I've been part of it, she led us through a digital storytelling process, which was a way that allowed the parents to really express their understandings of what the problems were, what they were trying to improve themselves, what they wanted to share with other people. There was a formal interview moment too, where we just kind of got more of their backstories. But at the end of the day, we're trying to not only understand challenges and possible solutions from that we could get from interviews, we're not only trying to get the, the interesting emotional stories of what people go through into a digital storytelling format so that other people can hear that, feel connected and motivated to try and do something about it. That's part of what we're trying to do. But at the end of the day, we're trying to develop a, re a long-term relationship with these and other parents to figure out how we can continually try to advocate and change the reality that makes it so difficult for them to get services for their kids. So what is the change? A strong set of relationships that you can continually convene to continue acting into the future. So what is rigor there, 
right? If we had chosen a primarily science-based way of thinking about rigor, stay unbiased. Make sure you don't get involved in the interview process. Only capture, you know, exactly what they're saying. Ask them all the same questions. If we had followed that sort of a process, we would have never gotten to the deep sharing that occurred through digital stories. And for the digital stories to yield the sort of knowledge that we needed, we also had to share a little bit about our backstory and become part of it. And actually the facilitator, Michelle Vasquez, she is also a mother of a child with autism. And so she was sharing her story. She was not keeping herself out of it. She was seeing herself as the primary instrument, which is a principle in qualitative research. And so we had to do a lot of things. We had to reach out offline. We had to become part of the conversations in other spaces, do whatever we can to develop the relationship base that allows us to keep doing good work. If we start with a rigor mentality, we're going to limit the things that we do to interview, focus group, and observation, probably, using very strict protocols that inhibit our ability to have the conversations, share the experiences, and develop the connections with people that allow us to act into the future. So what do we need to be able to do that, right? What, what, what are the terms and the practices that allow us to say that there are more and less responsible ways of doing that, but they're certainly not well described by the term rigor. Yeah, that is the question. I would like to do something a little creative, a little bit off the wall, maybe. Let's try to come up with some of these terms. Rigor, according to the Cambridge Dictionary, is the fact that people are made to follow rules in a very severe way or the unpleasant or severe conditions of something. There we go. We got our dictionary definition. Now with academics and with scholarship, Alfredo, you were talking about some of the historical creations of social science research that requires a set of rules that need to be followed very explicitly in this paradigm that action research actively rejects, which is an unbiased, removed, objective, and, and there's a lot of scholarship about whether anybody can actually be objective researcher who's examining some kind of analytic and analytic has its own interesting roots because it means taking things apart. So one particular facet of a human experience and taking that thing under analysis from this rigorous objective standpoint so that you cannot have any of the personal, any of the idiosyncratic, any of the stuff that actually makes people people involved in some of those analytic ideas. So one of the studies people cite all the time is the Stanford prison experiment. So you take away the individual agency of these students and you put them into this very rigorously designed prison experiment and you tell them to do things. When you follow that very rigorously and what you see that happens is that people start to behave in ways that go against their own personal proclivities, their own personal moral compass and and become very upset by it but partially that was because of the environment that was imposed upon them through this rigorous process and the inability through these power dynamics that people have talked about over generations for them to actually assert their own humanness so is that actually creating a space for understanding humans or is that a space for understanding what happens when humans are placed under highly hierarchical and dehumanizing environments. There's a history there. And I think that social science history coming from and in response to some of the superstition of prior generations decided that rigor was the antidote to superstition. And so it solved a certain problem. Superstition often meant that people would do things that were actively harming themselves, but because there were no other ways to justify their decision-making, 
they continued to do it because they thought that it worked. Scientific rigor came along and said, well, actually doing X, Y, or Z doesn't actually do anything for your plants and actually hurts them. So you should probably stop doing whatever it is you're doing. So rigor was seen as this kind of like, we have a lot of superstition. We have a lot of what people would call fake news these days. And so we need to be very carefully justified in our decision-making. So here's a process. Here's a good strict process. And if you don't follow it strictly, then you can't trust the knowledge that you think that you have. Okay. So we do that in the past generation and that solves a lot of problems, right? A lot of diseases were cured because of that process. A lot of famine was overcome because of that process. But then people go from solving specific physical issues and now try to apply the same kind of rigor into human issues. And that's where I think we get into a lot of problems. And I think action research shows those problems in a, in a really important way and a really well-defined way in terms of rejecting some of that rigor and stiffness. So what are the terms that we should use in action research within its own paradigm? I, I want to come in with a quote to segue into this part of the conversation. Ortiz, you said, and I quote, it is something we need to define outside of the language and paradigms of qual and quant. In fact, the qual language is firmly framed within a positivist worldview. Even as people have broken out of that in many of their practices, in real life, all the techs are making sure that they don't sound too far from quant for a reason. And so that's just not useful to what we are trying to do. And it's damaging because it then will push people down a pathway of trying to generate rigor in moments when it simply is counterproductive, it isn't feasible, and clearly will marginalize people who don't have research rigor or research skills. I agree with that. And I am going to take off my dissertation hat for a second. I'm going to put on my practitioner hat to respond to your question, Joe. And I'd like and it's somewhat of a devil's advocate stance. And I want to hear from you guys what you think. For me, I don't know exactly what the terminology is, Joe. But as a practitioner, what I believe as far as how we should qualify and perhaps measure action research, it's kind of the opposite of this stiff approach and rigorous approach, right? It's to what extent are you taking a patient approach, right? How are you not bounding your study within a particular timeline? How are you looking at it through a long-term lens? And what are the steps that you're taking along the way to make sure that a study is moving forward and that you're achieving wins along the way, right? So as a researcher, you have to plan for what you're doing, I think, right? Even though I'm a big advocate of this idea of emergence. But from what I've seen, most of the projects around here that fail, it's because they're being forced to be rigorous. It's because they're being forced to exist within a timeline, right? It's because they're outcome driven, right? Kind of like a running theme through our conversation is it's not about that, right? It's about actual meaningful action that affects people's lives. So to me, as a practitioner, I push back against the fact that it has to be rigorous and in and, and this timeline and rigid and stiff, right? To me, it's the opposite. But my dissertation committee wouldn't like that response. And I'm curious what, what you all think. That ties back to the original story I told of fear and how I ended up writing my dissertation. But it also ties to the previous quote around alternative terminology. And I'm, I'm going to go to a couple of additional ones that are related to that from the quote from before. So let's see the term. Let's go relevance. If we know we're trying to actually help in some way and we're, we're doing it in a different way by leveraging knowledge in ways that most people don't. So it's a knowledge game too, right? When you're using action research, it's not just action, it's leveraging knowledge. So relevance as a top idea, I think, or terminology to describe what we should be aiming for 
is big because whatever we do has to actually end up being in form and content useful to people. There's a tension right there. Do we create reports that are really systematically have analyzed everything? Or do we create process data, turn it around quickly so people can use it? Maybe it's about quick analysis through conversation of key ideas that just came out of something else. Those are new research methods with an aim towards relevance. So it's relevant and it's usable. So that's got its own set of rules. How do you do that? And how do we come up with new methods to do that? Because those methods aren't abundant enough within the world of practice or in the world of research, right? To me, relevance would be a big complementary word or substitute in some ways for rigor. I'll just take one more. Meaningful and capturing a diversity of voices. Are we generating knowledge in ways that people want to keep talking about? Is it referring back to their lives? Are the examples coming from the challenges they're actually trying to address? We can go back to the example of the parents with the kids with autism or the other project we've been working on in terms of LGBTQ plus issues and treatment in terms of health equity. Are the stories that we're generating, the processes we're using, allowing people to tell their story, to feel heard, to feel connected, and to feel motivated to do something with it? Well, if the goal is to get people to tell a story in a way that they feel heard, connected, and motivated for action, do you start with rigor or do you start with storytelling? We're not gonna worry too much about how accurate everyone's story is, because in this moment, we're just trying to generate relationship and an initial knowledge base, or we're, we're trying to figure out where to go next. The rigor lens in all of these examples prevents us from going down pathways oftentimes a meaningful conversation and relevant conversation. That is the crux of what I think action research as a paradigm shift and as radical epistemology as a paradigm shift is about, is that how do we start to generate knowledge for action, for relevance? How do we generate connections for improving the situations and experiences of the people we're working with? And I think that's a radical paradigm shift in a lot of ways, because when we talk about academic rigor, we're often talking about, are you right? Are you accurate? Are, you know, is this some knowledge that we can be confident in? When we're talking about action research, we're talking about knowledge that can be used to do something for a qualitatively better experience for some other people. And so one of the things that's built into action research is that we actually don't know. And I think that there's a part of not knowing that is really liberating in terms of thinking through what it means to live life and to do research that has an impact on, on our lives and making our lives better in some qualitative way. Because it could be that we go through an action research project and the policy changes. And for example, in your projects that you were talking about, Alfredo, with kids on the autism spectrum, we could find that a policy shift really helps students on the autism spectrum from ages of six to 12. But that policy shift gets implemented for students on the ages of 12 to 18. And in fact, that policy shift doesn't do anything beneficial for them. And so we need to go and iterate, which is built into the action research process, to figure out what's going on there. And so we don't feel like we ever know anything, but we do know something for some period of time and for some context. But we're always questioning that because we know that there's no fixed knowledge. And one of the things that I think rigor is trying to do, one of its maybe assumed objectives is to have some kind of fixed knowledge, whereas action research is trying to have some fluid knowledge because we're always in process together. I'm not sure how that rel relates to my uh, question of what are the definitions of these terms or what terms should we be using for this, but I think it 
moves us towards that in some way in, in some of those debates. Well, as you just described, if we're trying to help people change their realities, it's got to be adaptive. It's got to be iterative. We have to understand that we don't know in advance. I was very influenced, as we all are, during our PhD journeys by certain theorists, and they stick with you, right? So Peter Checklin, Soft Systems Thinking, we're going through a phase of trying to find out about the situation. And that finding out will reveal a pathway on what to do next that we couldn't know right now. And so, so therefore, to your example, if we know that action research to, to be useful, meaningful, relevant, all these other things, needs to not know, have go through phases of not knowing, and needs to be able to adapt. Well, right off the bat, we need to be able to tell students or others who choose this pathway, you don't need to follow the same rules. You can't declare in advance that you're going to talk to 20 people by this date in these moments. Where is your double diamond of phases where you go through feeling around, you kick up a bunch of dirt, the dust starts to settle, you get some clarity, and then you find a new pathway that is meaningful. We need to heavily challenge the idea of rigor in those situations because it will prevent us from thinking it's okay to not know and to go out and find out in very kind of adaptive ways. I just realized that for all three of us, we're pretty critical when it comes to this type of stuff. But I don't think we are all sitting here making the case that action research should not be rigorous, right? Even though we kind of are. But it's more so I think what we're doing is making the point that as a researcher, you have to be aware of and acknowledge the moments within action research where it should be rigorous. In addition to that, really what's driving the study are these other facets, the usefulness, the relevance, the meaningfulness, and so on. With that said, I thought we could also kind of do a round of an example of when rigor is appropriate in an action research study, if you think it is. I mentioned that one of the ways in which my action research study for my dissertation is different from some other work that I'm doing in the field through the lens of rigor is that it's forcing me to document my process and what I'm doing. And we've had discussions on this podcast before of, well, what's the difference between action research and just like good development? And, you know, I've been thinking about that because at the end of the day, there's something to be said about being able to share what we're doing and learning with other people who give a shit, right? And, and, and yes, that doesn't exclude, of course, the people that you're working with, but it's going to be a lot easier for me to make the case for my processes and methods with my, my study through my dissertation than what I've just got kind of going informal, not informally, but less structured in, in the field. And, and I would attribute that to being forced on a rigorous path, in which case I think it's a positive outcome. It's a beneficial part of action research. So I just wanted to pull that point out. And I don't know what you guys think, but to me, it's important to draw that distinction that we're not, I'm not making the case that it shouldn't be rigorous. It's just, we have to be aware of when and how and why, and that we're, it's not dominating necessarily the driving force or nature of our study. What do you all think? I think that when we're talking about action research knowledge versus other kinds of knowledge, who our audience is and what our knowledge is going to be used for is really important because if our knowledge is understanding the feeling and experiences of people, understanding how relationships work and what relationships you're in and how your own positionality impacts how you're thinking about things is also a deep part of what makes quality action research. And if you don't have that, people will question 
your study or your process or whatever. Another thing that I think is important to talk about is when we're talking about where is a highly justified communication activity important in action research, one of the things that the paradigm of action research in my mind talks about is the contextual nature of knowledge and how important context is in terms of what justified knowledge means. In terms of action research, I think when you're writing up a article for your colleagues to read about, to see if they're going to use something that you've done in your project, you need to be very careful to justify your choices. So when you're writing up your article, it should be rigorous in terms of making sure that you covered all of your bases and made sure that you took all of the considerations that happened and your own shortcomings. Because one of the important facets of quality action research is to recognize the work and to recognize the limitations. And I think that's one of the things that is really important in terms of what makes for good action research. Using a rigorous way of communicating, a rigorous way of discussing in an article what it is that you're doing is going to be really important. And if you come up with some kind of discovery through your action research process, so, you know, Adam, you're working in greenhouses for the Andean Alliance. It could be that you discover through the action research process some really important design component of a greenhouse that needs to be out there for other people to understand who live in similar contexts and circumstances. If that's the case, you need to be really rigorous to make sure that people totally understand everything that's going on in that discovery so that they can take that knowledge that you have generated collaboratively and see how they may want to appropriate it for their own purposes. And to think through some of the procedural facets of what it is that you did in terms of making sure that there's community buy-in for the location, to understanding the different design elements, to thinking through that process, and so that they don't just take what it is that you're doing and plop it down somewhere so it fails, because we know that often fails. But if you rigorously engage in that process of reporting what it is that you did, where you found knowledge that you think could be shared, where there are shortcomings, then that's a place where I think rigor can justifiably be used. And I think that in making action research reports rigorous is the context for that. So I'm going to throw away the word rigorous, for, for now at least, and I'm going to replace it with just a simple word, responsible. What is responsible okay. action research? And to me, responsibility includes accountability, includes diligence in some moments. It includes sometimes using a few rules. Uh, it includes making sure that it is being responsive to the people that we're working with and the needs that they have and they've expressed. Relevance, usability, all those things we talked about before, I think do fit in with the notion of responsible. But what are some of my responsibility concerns that I have? You know, I supervise PhD students who are doing their dissertations. I work as an action researcher, facilitator, designer, researcher in current projects. So what are some of the concerns that I have that make me want to make sure that I'm upholding a standard that I think action research elevates us to that is something that is not the same thing as being a regular practitioner or a traditional researcher? So a couple ideas. One, being really keenly aware of participation. Are the right voices present? Because if we're trying to make sure that the, the knowledge that is most relevant to, to the situation that we're trying to address and whose knowledge counts, who are the knowledge holders that need to be part of this. And a responsible action research approach needs to go beyond just who is the organization that I'm working with and, and look a little bit more broadly and say, who is in the ecosystem of actors that needs to be influencing this, their voice needs to be present. A quick example of that, recently we were working on action research-like uh, process 
with the Human Rights Center of a university here in the United States. And we had done a bunch of framing interviews up front to really understand their starting point and try to figure out some of the history in terms of their, their strategy in, in human rights. And at a certain point, I was happy with where we'd gotten. And my co-researcher said, no, we need more, we need more student voices. We don't have enough community organizations giving us their perspective. It was really thinking about whose voices are missing. And that's not something that you that you typically think of. I know some do, but that you typically think of as a practitioner. And so we went through another round and we did more of a formal survey to reach out to some of those folks and to process the information in a way that was kind of standard. And so that was, it was like a, a rigorous moment. I, again, I think it was a responsible moment of saying, we're trying to make sure that we get the most relevant knowledge into this process so that we can make the best decisions together about how, how to change things. One of the things that is different between action research and traditional concepts of rigor is that you're, in your inclusion criteria for your selected sample for rigorous social science research, it's supposed to be predetermined. And this also happens in ethics review boards. You have your predetermined set of who is included in your study and who is not. And you can't then, without going through a series of processes that are really difficult, reimagine who hasn't been included yet and who might need to be included again in terms of responsible action research. So it's a parallel point to the one that I think you were making, which is it is important to have that rigor in terms of adding new voices. It is also important to not necessarily predetermine as the individual researcher going into a project whose voices need to be also included. And so there's this space that I think action research elevates us to that takes away some of the shortcomings from the practitioner world and from this kind of uh, traditional social science research world. Yeah. So that's one aspect of a little bit more of a researcher's mindset is helping us to approach it more responsibly. I'll take it a little bit further. Let's say we're successful in getting the right voices into the room, into the process, et cetera. Now, a concern I have in terms of doing responsible action research is fidelity to participant knowledge, to what I mentioned earlier. To what extent is that knowledge or those experiences of the community members, whoever it is we're working with, are they surviving the journey? And so I don't know if I gave an example here, but we had a process whereby some local community-based actors really challenged the notions that NGOs, non-governmental organizations that, that were in the space were representative of community needs. And they challenged and said, you don't represent us, right? That generated this big conflict in this kind of participatory process that we were facilitating a few years ago. And it really changed the tenor and the shape of the space together. We started designing things differently to preserve some of these voices and make sure they didn't get drowned out in consensus-based processes whereby the dominant voices would again say, these are the final ideas. So we found ways to keep to isolate the community knowledge in key moments so that it might survive the journey, right? And then we created this little thing called the, the iceberg. It was an iceberg diagram. We call it, we said, the genealogy of the iceberg. And what it was, was it was our final declaration of what the problems were that we were trying to address, in, in this case, in communities affected by mining in Southern Peru. And then we said, okay, if this is our kind of problem statement, whose voices are still present in that problem statement? And did those challenges by the local community actors against NGOs survive? Is that still there or did that get washed out somehow through our own processes of formalizing documents 
inviting in mostly research types or leaders to do the fine-tuning of the with the data. And we found that a lot of it did survive for a few reasons that, that we don't have time to talk about now. That's a researcher mindset. That's saying, let's trace this back. Let's make sure that there's a trail and that the way we process data continues to find divergent ideas that are really relevant to the points that specific groups were bringing up and not just wash those out into categories that no longer represent those, those important ideas. And so that, that's a research process that would create more responsible research. And those are high level data uh, documenting and data analysis techniques required to be able to do that. To me, that's also a concern I have that I would voice in favor of more responsible action research. I don't need the word rigorous to describe all the things that I just said. Yeah, and I, I like this term responsible action research. I think that the idea of responsibility also has a good connotation as well as denotation, right? Because I think that's one of the things that's important in our days is different words mean certain things, but they also, because of historical usage, have implications for other kinds of things. And I think responsible is really important these days, particularly in research. This is something that I think is a bigger topic than we can discuss now, but and there are people that have written about quality indicators for action research, but the term quality for me has the implication to it that I think is really important in action research because one of the major critiques of action research is that it's not being a practitioner, it's not being a researcher, and so it's low quality. And then people publish what might be considered to be low quality action research, and so action research gets a bad name. You know, and we had Pat McGuire on here. And we were talking about feminisms and action research and can you have action research without feminism? She's like, yeah, there's loads of it. And a lot of people do a lot of action research that doesn't follow any kind of thoughtful engagement with responsibility, with quality indicators, with self-reflection, with including more participant voices and using that data responsibly. Then we have action research that is of maybe dubious quality. And then we have action research that can be transformative or a major contribution to life and, and knowledge. So this idea of quality to me has something to it. And I'm not exactly sure how to go about talking about it because it is such a big topic. When we have the examples that you presented, Alfredo, about the, the different choices that you've made and the responsiveness to people, you know, how, you know, what is quality responsiveness? I don't know. That's a question that I don't think like it will look different in different contexts. What is quality reflexivity? I'm not exactly sure how to, to define that. So, but I think that we could make progress in those ways, but then one of the things that I'm, I'm leery of is that it gets too stiff. So then there's just a list of prescribed quality indicators instead of the kind of spirit of what it means to do something with energy, with thoughtfulness, with, open consideration and some kind of wisdom. Those are the kinds of activities and actions that I would like to see in an action research project, evidence of that, to make sure that it is responsible, like you said. Those ideas and concepts are a little more fluid. They're not as easy to define. Joe, I have a question for you. Is it possible that we're overthinking it? Is it too broad of a statement to say that quality action research is research that's meaningful and actually like leads to some sort of change or action and if it doesn't then it's not well i think as we're doing the action research like that's part of our job is to overthink this kind of stuff but we're overthinking it for a purpose right now the idea of responsible is really important you know good action research or whatever you want to say needs to be responsible it needs to contribute to the betterment of some people's lives it needs to have some kind of social 
change or social justice orientation to it. So it could be as simple as, you know, we're a community, here's a well-defined kind of idea that we're going to be working on. Here's an issue, here's a problem, and we're going to do some action research on it. It could be that simple. Yes. And how do you know that you've contributed to meaningful change? For sure, in the practice world, we just assume so much that the things we're doing are meaningful. And I think at least this idea of responsibility brings in is we have way more of a responsibility to back up our knowledge claims, to back up the idea that what we're doing is meaningful, to hear what meaningful means from different people. And that requires using techniques, develop a documentation process, create a knowledge trail, ask questions around what is responsibility in terms of the research components of things. Are we doing them in ways that are really treating the data in, in a way that's that makes sense. What is responsibility in terms of action? What is responsibility in terms of who was actually part of the process, who was invited, who wasn't, and how their knowledge survives? So just going back to some of the things we talked about a second ago. So I think, yes, but then what the research side of it brings in, which the, the rigor side, right, and that I'm replacing with the word responsibility is, it says, yeah, but you now need to be able to really explain and back up your knowledge claims. And so how do you do that in a way that is responsible? Well, it requires a lot of practices that we're not used to engaging in that are sometimes time consuming, less efficient. And many of them come from the world of research and they give us tools to be able to, to bring into our, our toolbox that allow us to show that in fact, our knowledge claims are good. Last thing just to tie back to my original example of my ethnographic writing style. I, I don't always write in that way now, I do most of the time but it was a huge discovery for me. It makes for better communication when you're presenting back knowledge, not only in terms of being able to show that your knowledge claims went through a process that is recoverable and people can tell that what you're saying does represent at least some of the most important ideas that came out or, or the changes that came out, but, but that you went further and put it in the participants' voices directly, it changes the tone of it. It, it both communicates better but also shows this person really cared about presenting this research in a responsible manner. All right, so let's do big takeaways. First, a big takeaway for me is that focusing too much on rigor can actually be counterproductive to the purpose of action research. So we need to create a new lens or a new terminology for how we are acknowledging what we are traditionally calling rigor whether that's quality or, or responsible, I think we need to keep having that discussion. The second big takeaway for me is that however we're qualifying it, I think it needs to be acknowledged explicitly in a study, right? Like I know that in, in my paper, it was common practice that you talk explicitly about your reflexive process, you talk explicitly about your positionality. I think you also need to talk about your study through this lens of rigor or quality or responsible and how you're approaching it. And then finally, it's also really making me question action research for dissertations. I think that it's not to say that you shouldn't do action research for your dissertation. I don't believe that. But I think that you should be pushed outside of your comfort zone by committee members to really consider why you're doing action research for your methodology because it's possible that it's just unrealistic to achieve quality action research in a given timeline. Given the constructs of rigor and what is expected of a doctoral candidate, it might clash with 
quality or responsible action research if it's not framed appropriately and in a particular context. I think that if you have the time and opportunity to do an action research project for a dissertation, you could still do it, but you need to have like seven or eight years of PhD study. We're talking about some of these issues to really be able to get into if you have it, if you're not already midstream. So I like your argument, Adam. I'm going to push back on it because I want to defend my PhD supervisees in their choice to do action research, but I think it's a really well taken point. I am not saying that action research should not be used for a dissertation. Mm -hmm. I'm just saying we have to really give consideration to the context and all the variables, you know, before we just commit to that. that yeah. That's more my point. For me, in terms of what it means to do action research in this podcast is kind of a, a semi-action research endeavor. I have more questions now than I came in with, and I think that's a good thing. One, there's a real gem in terms of thinking about responsibility as a keyword. I think there were some very clear, like relevant, useful, including a variety of voices. Those concepts are really important to talk about and to think about. I think that the idea of rigor is still something that I'm torn about in terms of rejecting it outright or including it in only in very specific contextual places. I think in terms of takeaways about this conversation and where I'm at too, thinking through what it means to do contextual thinking becomes really important when we deal with these tricky issues and how important context and those things that action research often take into account and traditional research take into account, which is the context and the participants and the ways in which we're thinking and the ways in which we're reflecting through our methodology, our methods, and our decision-making from that. And I think that one of the things, one of the tasks that I feel is really useful for action research is to develop as its own paradigm and establish itself as strong in itself. Because I think that so far I'm torn because action research does join a number of worlds together. And some of them are woven well together. And some of them seem to be little loose threads that are still being pulled apart. And I think that this one is, is one of those. Yeah, uh, I guess my takeaways, I guess I'll, I'll connect one to what you said earlier, Joe, that there was times uh, when you, you as a practitioner realizing now that some of the things that you were dealing with were data and you weren't thinking of them as data. That just reminds me that the research part of action research is a reminder that it, this is the knowledge game. Like it, it is about leveraging knowledge in more powerful ways than traditional practice allows. And to be able to do that requires a set of skills and processes to make sure that you really are both leveraging the right knowledge from the right people, processing it in ways that allow their knowledge to stay alive in forms that they will still recognize and, and ideally in processes that allow them to process along with, with us. But at the end of the day, I think a lot of the responsible research side of things is going to have to do with notions of who's involved, just straight participation questions, how they're able to share their knowledge, and then how we're able to to, alongside with them, take that knowledge and truly be able to leverage it, which requires some research skills, processing, et cetera, and an ability to show uh, a trail, make it recoverable. And it's so fundamentally different what we're trying to do with action research. Like it is 
fundamentally different from a typical quantitative study or even some of the more predetermined structured qualitative studies. If it's so fundamentally different, we do need new language and we just need to have this conversation and to theorize this a little bit because what is responsible in terms of trying to create change or support change in terms of generating data, processing data, and showing that whatever we did is actually representing the most important voices, causes, et cetera, that's hard to do. And those aren't worries that everyone has, but we do have them. And we have so many more things to worry about than some of the other research-focused traditions that we, we do need to, to figure out how to do that in a way that recognizes its uniqueness, and not just in terms of mixing things, but in terms of the fact that it is iterative, adaptable, and all those kinds of things we talked about earlier. Yeah, I'm glad you said that, the importance of vocabulary and how important vocabulary is when you have your own paradigm and how different that would be and how important it is to think through both the denotations of what the words mean and then the connotations. Joe, just one last thing there, and to the original point, that's why I choose to take a symbolic stand and stop using the word rigor because everyone else is using it. It's so structured into our thinking, into the textbooks, into the fear-based ways of teaching that exist in so many of these doctoral programs, rules-based fear that I need to reject that term. And I think we've made very clear that in rejecting the term, I'm not rejecting many of the very important ideas that it tries to represent, but represents poorly or sends the wrong message. So that's my final sort of take on this. I feel like that's a mic drop right there. I think so too. Dr. Alfredo Ortiz Aragon, thank you so much for coming back on the pod. It's always a pleasure to chat with you. Joe, always a slice. For those of you listening, reach out to us. How have you found yourself in the world of action research? Want to be interviewed or share one of your projects? Engage in interactive dialogue with Joe, Adam, and other experts and listeners in the community on Twitter at the underscore AR pod or the Action Research Podcast. You can subscribe to our podcast on most major podcast distribution platforms, including Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Action Research Podcast, created by Adam Stieglitz, Joe Levitan, Shikha DeWalker, and Vanessa Gold. See you next time.